And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. When I heard that my friend Silvia Vasquez Lovato was on a course to summit the Big Seven, now that's the seven tallest peaks in the world, I wasn't actually that surprised. I traveled with her to Peru a bunch of years ago. I knew she loved hiking. I knew she loved mountaineering. But what I didn't know was that she didn't always love the mountains or how her climbing passion started or about the demons that she was climbing to conquer. Look, I've been through my fair share of challenges and tragedy. I've wrestled with addiction. I've gone to therapy the whole nine yards. I'm not a snowflake. Lots of people wrestle with trauma and emotional upset. But not all of them choose to face down and rise above them by climbing Mount Everest. You would think, in a conversation with somebody who just climbed Mount Everest, tallest spot on the planet, that we would talk about the climb. Spoiler alert, we don't. What we do talk about is the memoir she just published, In the Shadow of the Mountain, which in part is about her journey to Everest, but it's also about the far greater mountains that she had to summit first. We dig into the why of, well, everything. Like all of my guests, Sylvia has stories of pets in her life, but that's really where the similarities end. In Sylvia's case, it wasn't until she became an adult that one of the biggest lessons from those childhood pets actually locked in at all, the need for nurturing attention, and intimacy. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. I want to start with a question that I ask um, everybody with whom I sit down um, related to animals in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know... I already had known a bit about your story mm-hmm. before before reading the the memoir that we will we will get a chance to talk about today. But Sylvia, I would love to know um, when I say to you the the memory or or the thought of an animal that has impacted your life. Mm-hmm. What comes to mind? Um. When I think of little animal, when I think of animals, it's very interesting. I mean, I grew with a cocker spaniard in my house. We had a little dog, maybe for about three years, not too long. Then we had um, a German shepherd, and they were very tender, but they didn't last too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the relationship, because of how chaotic life was, uh, there wasn't a lot of attention put into it the way that things are right now. Uh, as an adult, I never had the chance of having my own dog. 
Um, but when I was married, um, my ex-wife had, uh, you know, brought a dog into the relationship, a little Boston Terrier, and that was just always very loving and, and caring and kind. And um, unfortunately, I lost visitation rights once uh, we separated and plus she moved away. Um, and I guess it's funny, he, we... Uh, my ex came to visit one time and brought the dog and it was so cute that the first thing the dog did when he went back to his bed to where he used to be. I hadn't seen him in about three years, I think, three, four years. And it was just very special. And so he, he was a very loving little one. Um, and so I think when I think of animals, there's always a tenderness. I, I always, you know, they're a really kind companion but they did need a lot of care, and uh, and you need to make sure that you have that space to to have them in your life. One of the things that strikes me when you share that you had um, you know two kind of short term pets growing up, and you bring up a valid point, right? All all beings, especially small ones, need attention and love and time and space, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. structure, and balance, and an environment uh, that feels safe. Yes. And an environment um, that has structure. And so, though talking to you, I would do under any circumstances at any time. You are an endlessly fascinating and interesting friend who, with whom I am very proud to be connected. Um, you have recently, however, published... I'm going to say your first book because I know that there are many books in you, but this <laughs> this you. first book, uh, In the Shadow of the Mountain, A Memoir of Courage. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we could start with who who has given you pull quotes on the, on the dust cover of the book. You know, Selena Gomez, Elizabeth Gilbert, V, well, formerly Eve Ensler, you know, you know. the C... Hapclop, the, the CEO of North Face, you know, just a few, just a few people who yeah. are doing are doing things in the world have said powerful things about this book. Um, but the thing that strikes me is is how just unsafe your world felt to you mm -hmm. as a small child. Mm -hmm. um, and the impact that that had. And the almost primal animalistic response that you then had to it, you know, when a when an animal gets cornered, when an animal is afraid, we we are animals, <laughs> we humans. We like to think that we are some sort of special creature because we have this very complex brain. But at the end of the day, we're animals, and we want to survive. Mm -hmm. And your journey to survival, um, I would love for you to share a bit with with the listeners today, um, when you sat down to write this book and when you started going through this journey, um, what did you, what was your purpose for you? Was, what, what, what was the intention mm -hmm. in telling this story? I think my intention was to be as honest and as raw, uh, vulnerable, as I could ever be. I never knew this. I mean, I, I looked at it as potentially this being my 
um, my last book. Um, I, 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 it is one of those things that I, I think I just felt, I always knew that what I had gone through just didn't feel right and the whole complexities of it were very shameful. And one of the reasons that I kept it quiet and secret for so long, just almost under the radar. And, um, but I've also have seen how much self-destruction um, kind of keeping this shame had done to me. And, and so when having the opportunity to really write it out, I was definitely writing it for myself, but I also knew that I wasn't the only one that had gone through this. And so, and I just wanted to be almost as, as kind of opening up my heart because it's, it would be the only way to connect to people who maybe have gone through the same experience. And, uh, and so the result of it was maybe a, a, a memoir that has been, you know, we're getting amazing compliments on how raw, but also how hard it is. Um, it's not an easy read, but it is an inspiring one because it's, it's almost like a, a human. It's 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 this story, or, or or you know, through my sobriety, one of the concepts that really brought a lot of connection and clarity for me was the term of called common humanity, in which it simply says we're not alone. Um, and, and so I had been doing a lot of that meditative practice, which when writing it really helped me quite a bit because it allowed me to, to just, you know, knowing that I was putting this out, but also knowing that this would resonate with someone who maybe had had the hardest time. And, and by doing it, the biggest gift that I got of sharing the story the way that I did has been my own liberation and the opportunity of finding my own voice. So um, for those who haven't read the book yet, which if you haven't, please do yourself a favor and do. And um, it is not an easy read. Uh, I think it's not an easy read for anyone who reads it. This is the story of, a, of, um, of molestation and abuse, of feeling isolated, of feeling like you don't fit in, of um, addiction and alcoholism that strikes early. Mm-hmm. Um, as a means to cope and to take away the pain, the story of coming out, the story of family strife and healing, the story of conquering the seven. I mean, so, so many people go through, as you mentioned, this story unfortunately is not a unique one in terms of abuse and, and those sorts of things, you know, abuse that then leads to addiction, you know, the, the use of, of outside things to try to make the pain go away. But not everybody chooses to climb Mount Everest, let alone all seven, all seven, summiting all seven of the, of the peaks on our planet, the highest points of our planet. Um, how did that share, share a little bit of, of how that came to be Yes, because um, that was such a fascinating turn of the story for me. Yeah, and and I think Kathy and, and the one disclaimer. Yes, it, it's definitely. I mean, the way that I look at it, whenever 
when trying to tell people about the book too, is it almost feels like, yeah, we're going to go through some turbulence. Sometimes to get into a smooth flight, you're going to have to like go through a little bit of bumps and then ultimately, woo, the views are just, you know, unstoppable. And and so I think there is a little bit of the turbulence with the book that makes it a little uneasy. But then once you get a flight, once you're able to fly, it is, it's hilarious. It's really funny. Uh, I, I think... <laughs> I love how I've, I've heard a, a lot of sweet readers have told me, God, you destroy me, but you put me back together again. I mean, and, and just the laughter on it is, is very, it's kind of the way I am. Um, but to your question, um, I come from a country that it is known for its mountains. The South American Andes, one of the most gorgeous mountain chains in the world, comparable to the Himalayas. Uh, both my parents, especially my dad, was born in the Andes. My mother's family uh, on, my, on the maternal side are from the Andes. Yet I never grew with that interest of mountains. And so that's something that never appealed to me. If anything, we only knew about mountaineers as the toughest of the tough, just the big parkas. And, you know, you have to have, I mean, first of all, it's mostly men. And yeah, you know, who would do that? Not even James Bond can do that. Um, and so, and of course, given who I was, I could, I, in terms of all the, the trauma, it never really clicked for me about being interested in mountains. I wasn't even going doing trekking or anything. And so when I moved here to the States, that also wasn't on my radar. Yet I was struggling with my drinking and especially my 20s and things were getting out of control. And I literally was spiraling without any help or without asking for help until I reached such a low point and I asked my mother for help. And the irony is she, she had me come down to Peru to do a powerful healing session of ayahuasca. And so I always laugh whenever I tell people, who does ayahuasca with their parents? <laughs> Number one. It's, it's one of those things. Well, and having met your parents, I'm trying to, I was trying to, when I read that part of the story, I, I tried to visualize you sitting between your parents <laughs> at an ayahuasca ceremony. And I was, I was drinking some water and I literally almost shot it out of my nose. <laughs> yeah. um, having met them both and how proper, and we went to Christmas yeah, dinner at your home. They're very yeah. conservative. And I'm trying to picture them. <laughs> this ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah. It made no yeah, sense. Yeah, they're not this like you know hippie. Wasn't no, the, not I even a little bit. All, you know? No, it was like a fine china dinner thing for 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 Christmas when we went that year. It was, it was yeah. If anything, just like you know, my dad should have had a a, a, a tie if he, yeah. if he had his way. But it was just really interesting, and it was just totally out of left field. But that's one thing that I loved about sharing the story that. There's something within our culture, and and it just only felt right about doing it, and that is what really. And I remember also going into this ceremony, um, thinking that I possibly was going to see and maybe encounter the people that were trying to destroy me. Um, it was so interesting how I was so ready to put the blame on someone else. And and I, I remember being like, God, I mean, why is my life spiraling out of control? Like, who is, who are those negative forces? Who are those evil people that are trying to 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 cause so much pain? And and so that's how I go into this ceremony. And the one thing that I see 
is me as a little girl, me, the version of me that I had chosen to ignore, that I had tried to, that I had tried to, to just shut down. And I see my little girl um, wanting connection and, and just wanted to be acknowledged. And so, and so I remember, you know, reconnecting to that part of me a part of me that I had been trying to destroy it. And, and there was something magical when, when just feeling that kind of holding this little girl, like she just wanted to be acknowledged. And, and as we have that, we start hearing these rumblings and mountains formed around us. And it is my little girl that extends her hand and pulls me into the mountains. And so she she's the one who takes me into this walk into a mountain. And so, and so that was my vision. And so, when I got out of uh, when I got out of the ayahuasca and back here in San Francisco, I decided to put that into action. And, and I figured. And what well, year? And what year are we up to at this? We're two thousand five. Yeah. We're two thousand five. I had just left, and and as a little disclaimer too, I mean, I, I'm becoming an alcoholic, and I'm working for an alcohol company, which wasn't maybe the very best. Uh, so your first job in the States was basically your job was to drink. It's like, the next thing you're going to tell me is that you lived at a winery, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it is amazing what, and, and of course, this is, has nothing to do, I, I don't go after the industry and anybody who works there. It is, it is just, it, you know, for people who have issues, in, in my case, um, it was an outlet and, and things were quite unchecked. And, and unf unfortunately, too, I just became a master in, in pretending everything was right. And all of, all of that, you know, gets connected to just the, the upbringing. And I, I mean, all in the power of resilience that we all have, even as a little kid with all the dysfunction that I was going through, I developed my own resilience. I developed my own way of survival. And I think, um, you know, that unfortunately when, when go unchecked or, or whenever you don't have the right support can, can also, you know, help you create an addiction, which is what happened to me. Um, but yeah, so here I am. I mean, finally I, just, I had had enough. I had left the alcohol company and I got a job with, with eBay. I moved to the tech side. That's when I was able to, squeeze a little week to go to, to make this vision into a reality. And I told myself, well, if I need to walk to a big mountain to bring this big pain, it's only logical. Eh, why don't we walk to the base of Everest? With the caveat that I had never gone on a big trek before. <laughs> I had never done any of these trips. I didn't even have any year. I just felt like, why not? You know, <laughs> this is this logical. I'm just I'm going just for go a walk. Just going for a walk, um, to, you know. And so... Was it the, isn't the base, isn't the base like 15 or six, 17,000? Like the base is like 18,000 feet. That's the bottom. Like that's the bottom yeah, of 18, the 18,000. <laughs> it's the bottom. It's the bottom, 18,000. With no experience, just going like, you know, why, why it is. And I, I think there is a, a popular saying yeah. how uh, ignorance is bliss. So I, I definitely was was uh, piggybacking from on, on that. And so I took myself to the base of Everest, not knowing what to expect. And on my second day in the Himalayas, that's when my life turned around because the very first time I encountered the Himalayas, just witnessed them, it completely 
just open this. I, I think it was a very first time in my life that I sent, I sense I, I sense a sense of belonging as if something that was so bigger and enormous was not without breaking me. you open first. And I didn't, well, yeah. And, and I think, but there was something about, I guess the whole connection, what led me there, there was something about innocent that, you know, what really opened up inside of me as well was all. And, and this side that I remember finding myself wanting to see more and wanted and inspired to move there, but, but it was almost this welcoming that I felt as if the mountains were like, hello, here we are. And, and that really only opened up this strength in me. And I made it to the base of Everest in four days. I was going so fast. I was just excited. I wanted to see more. Um, and when I got to the base, I had the opportunity to see the sunrise coming between Everest and Nupsi. And it was so magical, so powerful. And I remember just, I was, I, I felt I was on a beautiful, sacred place. And that's when I made a promise. I said, Everest, you, I mean, you've changed my life. You're opening something I didn't know I had in me. And I want to say thank you by trying to come back one day and try to climb to the top of it and also try to come back with a social cause because I want to be able to give this back. And so that was the start of a promise. That was the start of, of just saying something out loud with a lot of meaning, not knowing how I was going to do it, when I was going to come back. Um, it's just having this massive dream. And and so, so that was a, the very first seed. That plays so there's so there's so much in the book that resonates and and we could spend hours and hours talking through the nuance of the specific experiences that that you've had, which are mind mind blowing and heartbreaking and heartwarming and hilarious and and all of the things. But there's <laughs> there's yes. there's a couple of lines in particular that land that really landed with me. Um, everything we are contains our ancestral lineage. And by telling the stories or doing the rituals that nod to or reenact those stories, and that you're talking specifically about a an indigenous population, that this this group, the Rai, Rai did a, the Rai, are remembering where they came from and becoming who they are meant to be. It is only by telling the stories that they know who they are. And then in the next paragraph, it is inexhaustible because the source. You have it as a lowercase s, but I believe like the meaning what landed for me is source capital S, is all of us. Yes. And and I wanted yes. to Me kind of dig into that a little bit, that <laughs> when we think about what leadership looks like in the world today, so there is, you are part of an elite and 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 really an elite and exclusive group of human beings who have done a remarkable thing, you know, lifting yourself up off the plane of earth mm -hmm. to like climb to the highest point in heaven. Um, it's like astronauts, like there are blessed few people who actually have looked back on our planet from space, right? And so, yes, or, and those are even fewer who have stepped on to a different planet. There are few people who have gone to the depths and depths of the sea. You know, that there are 
these groups of people who mm-hmm. who do remarkable things, who bring, and many people, most people will never do these things. And there is an Everest for everyone. Everyone has one. Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to yeah. talk about that source that when you're talking, especially when you're working with, you know, this cause that you have to work with young girls, um, saving young women from things like trafficking and like all of the, the the young women whose lives you talk about in this book, whose lives you have empowered and 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 really help them find their own strength. How do we get to bring that into the world on a wider stage? And how can just your average person you know, it's their, they're an accountant who works from home with three kids going to school. They live in a suburban tract home somewhere in name a state, right? Yeah. And yet this greatness is in them. How do you speak to that, this kind of leadership to someone in that kind of place? Great, 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 great question. Um, so, and, and thank you so much for the compliment with the girls. So one thing I just said that just jumped at me is like, with these young women with the work, definitely I didn't save them. They saved themselves. Um, yeah, I was just, and, and it is interesting because here I am trying to to bring this group of young women thinking like, okay, we're going to like get to do some healing and learn and I'm going to be their mighty leader. Oh no, that doesn't happen that way. And there's that chapter, um, nothing with too small that you can just say everything almost blowing up in my face. And it is rhythm, the chapter that you were talking earlier about our ancestral connection and Miyolangsama, the goddess of inexhaustible giving. Um, rhythm and, and nothing would do a small are my favorite chapters in the book. That is, I, I think it's, yeah, it, it is, it totally resonated. I just had so much fun digging through those because it just, it's almost, um, and it is funny because it is interesting. I, I, people call me a badass, but you know, you know me, um, if I can hug everybody, you know, I will go around the world hugging everyone. So, so yeah, you know, rid of me, your lungs and, and nothing we do smaller kind of me, like, ah. But, um, but you know, to, to your point right now about, yes, it's in all of us, and especially for almost everyone who, and, and going what we have gone through over the last two years, I mean, especially parents who, who had to deal with, now, no longer they didn't have a place to go to work. They needed to stay home and then they needed to have their children who who no longer had a, a school to go to. And I mean, it, it just, I think, especially the pandemic over the last couple of years has created and brought um, a level of uncomfortness that we didn't have. We, you know, I think we were right, we were riding high in life in, in just how things were developing. Um, unstoppable for, you know, almost a century until this massive reset. Um, I would say a couple of things. Number one, how to untap to that inexhaustible energy in all of us. I think it just, the the number one step, but my humble opinion would be just, you know, 
reconnecting to yourself, touching the heart, having that little moment. Um, and of course, I would love to bring everybody with me to the mountain and, and that could be quite challenging, but but even just trying to find a little moment of honesty with each other, with, with yourself, it, it needs to start with you. It needs to start to, to ask yourself, okay, what is that? that dream, what is that desire, what it is that, what is my inner Everest? We all have it, my inner or outer Everest. The question, I think the number one step is to ask ourselves, what is it? And and give ourselves that that moment and that space to, to have that honest question. You can be in front of a mirror, you can even open up the phone and, and, and just start to pretend doing that the FaceTime to even look at yourself. But because I, I mean, and, and that's kind of what I, I love when writing in, in my own book. We're also really good about lying to ourselves. So we're also really good about not taking accountability and avoiding, um, you know, putting ourselves in that uncomfortable situation and asking that question. You might not get the answer right away. The clarity might not even come on the spot. You might even get more frustrated. And then just give yourself the space and the time to then ask it again at another day. I think, I, I just feel that we just need to understand the beauty, the love, the greatness that it is in all of us, yet to untap it. Um, can, you know, it might have hidden a little bit. I mean, it's almost imagining that, you know, we're this gorgeous, shiny, we all are this gorgeous, shiny diamond, but then when life gets on the way, you know, layers and layers and layers of dirt come on top of it. And so if you have this massive blockage, and if you're going to ask, okay, you know, my inner diamond, my inner shine, what is it? My dreams, there's no way you're going to get the answer right away. But if giving yourself a little bit of space, and I am a firm, I mean, I've seen the power that we all have, even by by putting our the hands in our heart, or even I mean, and, and I know it will likely will sound really corny, but and that's one of the things that I, I talk in the book. Even you know, one of the most one of the most challenging moments in my in my whole climbing of Everest, in which I was ready to quit. Here I am, over almost close to twenty four thousand feet, with no little, little oxygen, a storm almost killed all of us and I'm having vertigo. I don't want to go further. I need a hug. I need, I am having an emotional breakdown. Which is dangerous at that altitude too. Like emotions are not your, emotions are not your friend when you're um, in that kind of, because it takes all your, it takes energy. It takes oxygen, what little oxygen you have. It's almost like you're crying. "Ah, Why can't I even breathe? You're coming. It's like, God, I've been talking about having like this massive emotional mental breakdown. And what calms me? I mean, I wanted somebody to come and give me the biggest hug and tell me I was okay. I wanted my mom to come and be like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, you're going to be okay. And I didn't find anyone. And I gave myself the hug and it just like, calm me down ultimately. So, so connecting to that, I think it is, you know, that strength in all of us, it, it is, it starts with that little question, you know, what is a personal dream? I know I'm a firm believer. We all are here for a reason. We, I mean, we all have our inner Everest or our, or our outer Everest, every single one of us. 
you know, my story is no better than yours and, and vice versa. It, it's just, you know, you know, we are the only people that can really tend to ourselves and care to ourselves. And, uh, but I am a firm believer that when you start asking yourself, when you, when you take the first step of even digging and asking, that's the beginning of the change. Now, if you even ask yourself that in nature, holy man, that's even like a hundred times more powerful <laughs> because it, there's something really special about nature. And, and it doesn't need to be having to go to, to a massive international park. I mean, we have a lot of national parks everywhere. We have a lot of spots location. It's just just getting that little little opening, I think, if you're in nature, what I love about the opportunities in nature is awe. I don't think you can get awe when you are on the everyday life, you know, in your house, in your neighborhood. It is just a little bit too complicated. But if you can give yourself just that little hike around, you know, around the corner, not too far away, and just give yourself a moment, I think it is a very first step, in, in my humble opinion. I had the great privilege of traveling to Peru with you. Mm-hmm. Which was a, uh, I think I was a year and a quarter sober. Yes, you at were. At the time. You I had were. just, I had, I was just a bit over a year sober when we did that trip. Yes. That was very brave of you. I, sometimes I think bravery and stupidity are kind of, um, soulmates. <laughs> it's like I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just did it, not realizing that it might not have been the best choice, but I got to be courageous in the process, so. I have to tell you, it was an epic, at least for me, one of my epic experiences on that trip was that train ride from Cusco to Puno. And somehow for me, it was still one of the most majestic experiences in my life. Mm-hmm. And somehow I remember you journaling. You were sitting down mm-hmm. on one of the on one of the cars, and mm-hmm. you were just at it, writing, writing, writing. And mm-hmm. I could sense that something was also affecting you. But I remember, like in terms of all the different things, that there was there was something there too. We were on that train ride that. Like twelve hour, thirteen hour train ride from yeah from Cusco to Puno and um, to the highest. I think that was the highest point in the world I've ever been. Not in a plane, yes. But yeah, I mean, I remember that um, that ride that whole time. I refer to the trip to Peru quite often as I I think about a word that comes up a lot, sometimes directly stated in the book and sometimes not compassion. Mm-hmm. And there is one line in particular, compassion is what allows pain and love to sit next to each other. Compassion is what allows pain and love to sit next to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would love I would love for you to dive into that a bit and and through that lens and again talking of leadership through that lens of how 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 do we teach this today my second book will be to write about compassion um 
because I think the word is quite misused. And I think we almost have to, to give compassion a facelift. I, I always learn of compassion being the one side. You know, I think for me, compassion was being care, caring and and simply have an open heart for someone else. Oh, I'm being compassionate to you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Give me a hug. Let me let me hold you. More than empathy. Um, I think for our cultures, uh, to me, Latin American cultures, a lot of um, I know African cultures, sometimes uh, Middle Eastern and Hindu cultures. We we are very uh, we love hugging. We we are just very expressive with family. And so in terms of families, like compassion, like, come on here, you're not alone. And, and we create this sense of community. Um, and and so compassion to others is something that I grew up with. And I, I gave it very easily, especially in my own upbringing. Um, both my parents came from a lot of poverty. And we still had a lot of relatives who who were not doing really well and the society in Lima was incredibly racist and classist. And so from the very beginning, my mother was, you know, she taught me to treat everybody who by who they are, never looked at the wealth or anything. And and I, as I'm saying that, I, I that's what I love the chapter about my aunt bringing the chicken, uh, which was a very PETA friendly, but... Um, and, and I, but, but I think so, so many of us have learned especially about being able to just care for others. And, and we've associated compassion that way. And what really striked me when especially going through my own sobriety journey is what it meant to give compassion to myself. And that was the massive game changer in life. If I, I mean, the, the next book I would love to write would be about the discovery of what self-compassion is. I think we have misused that term. I think because it's not something that it is uh, tangible to to show it. Well, or, or I think also in our society, you know, um, you know, I look at people who donate lots of money or do lots of volunteer work, which is great, not, not disrespecting that in any way. But I, there's a lot of external doing and not a whole lot of internal being. And that that the world around me is a direct reflection of how I am being in that world. Mm -hmm. And that if I'm being a kind, if that kindness, that compassion, that self-love, that trust, that intimacy, that vulnerability, all of those things are not embodied first in how I am being. And I'm not even talking about how I'm interacting with other people. I'm talking about literally how am I being in the world? When I'm sitting by myself at home, am I sitting in my crap and sitting in scarcity and sitting in lack and sitting in frustration and fear and all of the things? Or am I sitting in what is today going to be that I can leave the world a bit better than maybe it was yesterday? Or how can I touch someone else's life in a way that touches mine? You know, that that I can't fix my internal world with my outside world, it's, it's an end, nor can I only think of myself and not think of its impact on the world around me. Like, I feel like we're in this weird, society has this weird, it's like it's either completely selfish or completely selfless, 
Yeah. You know, and it's like... <sighs> and I think that's, that is what compassion to me, at least the whole sense of, of understanding the spectrum of the word, it has to go both ways. And, and learning for me, especially, you know, allows pain and love to sit next to each other. Um, what does that mean to you? Like when you me, say that, what does it mean? What it, what it has meant is I can, I, can, I can have suffering. I can have, I, I, can, I can let myself be triggered and I can give myself love at the same time. I don't need to be in the defense. And I think that's why when we give compassion to others, it is almost like we act as protectors. We act as like, I'm here to give, give, give. And giving yourself compassion is giving and receiving to yourself at the same time. And I think, and, and through the practices, at least the meditation practices that I've been working through um, to learn what compassion to myself was, was to to also I mean and and especially when writing this book, I had to reopen. I mean, so here I am, you know, decided to to write this book. I mean, the, the first promise I had to myself was, I need to write this sober. I need to, and it's not like I'm. It wasn't so much I need to get sober to. I mean, I'm only going to get sober to write this book. It's like it's it's one more drink of my life. I had a horrible episode after I came back from Denali. Um, I was sick. I had alcohol poisoning for five days. And I remember going like, okay, this is it, Sylvia. That's, I'm either going to, it's my life or one drink that I, I just, it can't, I can have both. And so then that's when I, I asked for help. I went and did uh, a second part of Hoffman. And that's when this year, a friend of mine sent me to do this compassion cultivation training classes. And I started. Yeah. So spoiler alert. The uh, ayahuasca ceremony that we talked about a bit ago didn't so, didn't get her sober. Like, by the way, <laughs> by the way, just yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, just I mean, by the is, way, this interesting. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, by the way, yeah. The disclaimer. By the way, the ayahuasca thing happens kind of a little. Like, you're a little about you're about halfway through the book when yeah. that happens. So there's still a whole other half of the story that hasn't oh, happened. Yeah. I mean, yet, I mean, just yeah. to be clear, the sobriety. I mean, mountains kept me sober, but in real life, I was a total mess, um, yeah. and so. I think um, to me, I remember when, when writing the book or, or when even deciding I needed to be like, okay, am I, can I walk this life as a sober person? And I started working on, on the compassion training and that opened up my, that was the very first time I'm like, oh my God, this is a medicine that I, I need. I, I, it just, the words, I remember the word, because of all the pain that I had, the words were just absolutely this massive healing medicine. It was my own ayahuasca journey without ayahuasca. So there was and no vomiting or diarrhea, which is there nice. There was no vomiting or diarrhea. <laughs> and I remember- Bonus just, points. Yeah. And, and I remember really, I mean, experiencing, it's almost as, as if I was seeing the 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 ray of, a, of, of the sun for the very first time. I didn't know how beautiful it was. And very much using the word of Miyulangsenma, I didn't know how much inexhaustible compassion I had within myself to give myself and then to give others. And, and so, so now, I mean, and, and so I remember as I was starting to go through the compassion, I felt like, okay, wow, I think I can work this life. I can walk the rest of my life with this daily practice and, and walking this, this road. And I think once I started having 
a little bit of the solidity on, on that. That's what I felt. Well, if I have the opportunity to write this book, I also want to be able to to open up these really painful areas in my life, and I need to do them sober. And so here we are, 2020, with a pandemic. We can't go anywhere. I can't escape. I'm now two years sober, and I'm starting to open up the most painful experience in my life. But I also knew, I mean, by 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 giving myself that compassion and just feeling it. I mean, I didn't have anyone that would be able to come and just say, hey, let me give you a hug. And just and relieving a lot of this was quite traumatic. But but that, I think, is solidified my, my practice and, and this word. I, I think it's just the idea of what we think it means. It possibly takes power from it. If there is one thing, just one thing that you would want someone to take from this book, one, the one, one message, thing. just the, the one, one, I mean, message. only one. one. There's only one. one message they're allowed to have, only one. I know. Oh, you're not alone, number one. You're not alone at any time. You're not. And you will see. This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. Reactivity. It's something I deal with a lot in my work with dogs. You know, things like excessive barking, lunging, pulling on the leash, even snapping or biting. So I'm not going to get into a discussion of what's aggression or reactivity. It's a different podcast, different topic. But I am going to talk about these extreme reactions because here's the thing. In almost all cases, the dog's reaction isn't actually about the thing in front of it. It's not making that choice. It's how the situation makes the dog feel in that moment. The dog feels uncomfortable, maybe even afraid. The level of intensity of the reaction directly related to how deep or big the trigger is. So when you remove the trigger and the dog feels safe or balanced, the reactivity goes away. Yeah, it's that simple. Here's the thing, it's no different for people. Yesterday, I got to experience it for myself. No, I, I didn't bite anyone, at least not literally. But I did post something to Facebook that I told myself was a powerful statement about leadership that it was me sharing a lesson of clarity. Then I got slapped upside the head. Someone I have mad respect for saw the video and asked what my intention was, because her experience of the video was whining, petulant, complaining, passive aggressive. Okay, maybe she didn't use those exact words. Okay, well, she did say whining, but the point is after being momentarily pissed off, I paused. My reaction to her reaction alone was telling. Because here's the thing. When I have a hair trigger extreme response to something, I can be guaranteed in pretty much every single damn case has nothing to do with what's in front of me. If I'm being responsible, truly responsible, that means I don't get to spew my bullshit into the world, full stop. I don't get to vent like a petulant child exploiting social media to air my grievances. What I do get to do is be responsible for my own feelings and experiences. Call a friend, call a therapist, get the feelings out, suss them out, and then identify the lesson and proceed. Sharing the results of the process, that's leadership. Vomiting emotion is not. 
So where in your life do you get to course correct on how you do or don't respond? What impact do you want to have on the world? Think about it. Sylvia has always been impressive. And seeing who she's become in the last several years, I mean, it's, hey, look, let's just say that if there are any humans on this earth with an Everest-sized spirit, she's absolutely one of them. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I would actually love to know what you think, so drop me a line. You can send a note to talkunleashed at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. 